Amen. You may be seated. Well, I invite you to turn with me to Revelation chapter 6. We'll be looking at verses 9 through 17 this morning. And as you're turning there, it's important once again to remind you that as we look at the book of Revelation, we, we never want to lose sight of the big picture. And we, John is, is describing what he saw. That is the dominant verb here. It's quite unique um, in Scripture, right? that the verb would be not what he said, but that he saw. There's obviously things he says and things he hears, but it's what he sees. This is about pictures. Revelation is about displaying or portraying the, this mystery in in vivid form, but it's not precise photographs. It's not a video that John is seeing, sort of like a, uh, you know, a foreshadowing in, in, in the form of a precise video of the events that take place. He, he, doesn't, he doesn't give us that portrayal. Revelation ultimately is symbolic. It's prophecy. It's, it's pictures in symbols, so Revelation ultimately is about the victory of the Lamb, and we never want to lose sight of that theme as we're working through this. It's about the victory of the Lamb, and so we, as we consider the breaking of these seals, keep in mind chapter 4 and 5, namely that God is on his throne and that Christ is worthy to execute redemptive history. And That's what chapters 4 and 5 were about. You have this heavenly vision of the throne room of or the throne of God, and all the angelic beings and creatures surrounding that throne. And then you have the Lamb who is worthy to receive the scroll that was in the hand of him who was seated on the throne. And he's now breaking the seals, opening that scroll, and revealing himself to be worthy to execute this part of redemptive history. So the first four seals, uh, as They've been called the four horsemen of the apocalypse, revealed judgments that were executed upon mankind throughout this present age. All right, each one of the examples that we looked at are things that we have seen repeatedly in history. Conquest, war, famine, and death. We can expect them to continue throughout history until Christ returns and even increase. Uh, what these seals revealed, however, is that the Lamb himself was the one breaking them. Right? The Lamb was the one who was in control. He is in sovereign control over these judgments, and so there's a purpose behind it. They have always served as a means of sanctifying his people and of bringing judgment upon his enemies. And so this morning, as we come to the fifth and the sixth seal, the goal of these seals seems quite clear. The fifth seal ought to embolden believers. It ought to strengthen us. While the sixth seal ought to terrify everyone else. I do believe that that's the purpose in these seals, to embolden and strengthen the faith of believers and to bring terror upon anyone who does not fit that description. Everyone else. Those who are persecuted now for their faith will be vindicated upon Christ's return when all wickedness is defeated. 
when all evil and evildoers are defeated. And so, in summary, I would say there are two kinds of people in the last days, those who long for the vengeance of the Lamb and those who fear the wrath of the Lamb. Those who long for the vengeance of the Lamb and those who fear the wrath of the Lamb. You are either with Christ or you're against him. There's no third neutral position here. And so before we read this passage, let's ask the Lord for his help in understanding it. Heavenly Father, we thank you once again for your word, and we thank you for this passage that is a challenge for us. It is so countercultural to consider these things. And yet, Lord, we want to understand your truth in the precise way that you've revealed it to us. And not try to sugarcoat things or not try to pass over things that are uncomfortable to us or for us. But help us to trust in you and to trust that this word has something for us, that it's, that it's going to do a work in us as we sit under its teaching. Lord, so cause us to have eyes to see and ears to hear that truth. Soften our hearts to respond in obedience that we might be doers of your word and not hearers only and that you might receive all the glory. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Revelation chapter 6, verses 9 through 17. And when he, referring to the lamb, when he opened the fifth seal, I saw under the altar the souls of those who had been slain for the word of God and for the witness they had borne. They cried out with a loud voice, O sovereign Lord, holy and true, how long before you will judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth? Then they were each given a white robe and told to rest a little longer until the number of their fellow servants and their brothers should be complete, who were to be killed as they themselves had been. When he opened the sixth seal, I looked and behold, there was a great earthquake and the sun became black as sackcloth. The full moon became like blood. And the stars of the sky fell to the earth as the fig tree sheds its winter fruit when shaken by a gale. The sky vanished like a scroll that's being rolled up, and every mountain and island was removed from its place. Then the kings of the earth, and the great ones, and the generals, and the rich, and the powerful, and everyone, slave and free, hid themselves in the caves and among the rocks of the mountains, calling to the mountains and rocks, fall on us and hide us from the face of him who is seated on the throne and from the wrath of the lamb, for the great day of their wrath has come. And who can stand? Amen. This is God's holy word. As we said when we introduced the book of Revelation, it doesn't hold any punches. And so as we preach through this text, we will deal with some very clear passages that make us uncomfortable. Maybe even both of these seals make us a bit uncomfortable because the one that is speaking of the, the martyrs under the altar is acknowledging that as believers, we will suffer persecution. And many of us will suffer it to the ultimate degree. And that doesn't sound like a very pleasant thought. And then we go to the sixth seal, and we see people fleeing in terror from the wrath of the Lamb. 
Well, let's break it down just by each seal and look at the fifth seal first, the cry of Christ's martyrs. This is the cry of Christ's martyrs. These martyrs are among the great multitude of the saints that are standing in white robes in the next chapter. Chapter 7, verse 9, it says, And this I, after this I looked, and behold, a great multitude that no one could number from every nation and from all tribes and peoples and languages standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes. I believe that these would be reflected as well within that multitude. And then they're especially mentioned as well as coming to life and reigning with Christ from heaven for a thousand years because they refuse to be identified with the beast. That's the description in chapter 20, verse 4. But here they are found under the altar. He opened the fifth seal, and I saw under the altar souls of those who had been slain for the word of God and for the witness that they bore. Well, in Leviticus chapter 4, the priests were given precise instructions regarding sin offerings. They were to collect the blood of a bull that had been slain as a burnt offering, and they were to take some of that bull and sprinkle it before the veil of the sanctuary. They were to place some of it upon the horns of the altar of incense, and then they were to return to the, uh, to the um, altar of burnt offerings and, and, or the altar that's just in front of the tent and pour the rest of that blood at the base of the altar there, the altar of burnt offerings. That's Leviticus chapter 4, verse 7. So, so you can picture that, right? They've sacrificed the bull. They've collected the blood in some kind of basin, and they're taking that blood and sprinkling it before the veil, placing it on the horns of another altar, the altar of incense. It's right before the Holy of Holies, and then returning to the, burnt, uh, the altar of burnt offering and, and placing it at the base. And it's, it's the blood of the sacrifice. And that's where we find here the souls of these who were slain for the word of God, for the witness that they had borne. Instead of the blood of slain bulls, John sees the souls of saints who had been slain as a sacrificial offering on account of their faith. And as judgment from the first four seals are carried out, the number of souls that is gathering under the altar there is continuing to grow. They have been affected by the judgments of those seals, and now they long, they cry out for God's justice to be fully and finally established. In other words, they want to see the end of Christian suffering and persecution. That's what their prayer is for. And some, when they read this, argue that praying for vengeance is unchristian. That they've um, they suggest that our attitude should be one of forgiveness. <clears throat> and there's examples of that, isn't there? You can point to Jesus who prayed for those who mocked and crucified him, saying, Father, forgive them for they do not know what they are doing. Later on in Acts, the same thing. Right? You see a similar attitude in Stephen's words when he prayed for those who were stoning him by saying, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. But that's not the whole of Scripture. You have many, many Psalms praying for justice, praying for vengeance, praying for the judgment of God upon his enemies. Taking vengeance into our own hands has always been forbidden. Even after Cain killed his brother and was cast away from his family as a wanderer, the Lord placed a mark upon him 
so that no one would retaliate. We are not to take vengeance or even bear a grudge against others, but we are to love our neighbors, Leviticus 19.18. Vengeance belongs to the Lord, Deuteronomy 32.35. And so we're called to wait upon him for deliverance. This attitude continues, and then it expands even in the New Testament. Jesus called his disciples to respond to their enemies with love. Paul taught us to do good to those who do us evil, and as far as it is possible, to live at peace with everyone. Peter encouraged his readers to repay evil with revile, or repay evil and reviling with blessing. But none of that is incompatible with the prayer of these martyrs. It is possible to long for both forgiveness and justice. Praying for one doesn't cancel out the other. These martyrs were not seeking personal vengeance, but the vindication of the name of Christ. And as long as the injustice of their persecutors was left unpunished, the justice of God could be called into question by his enemies on earth. He could continue to ignore that the justice would ever fall upon them. But John's revelation gives us this picture from a perspective of heaven where God's judgment is stayed by none other than his own predetermined will to save a certain number of the elect, to save a certain number of people until the martyrs reach their full. He, he will not return. And so the martyr's prayer is in agreement with the song of Moses, <clears throat> which concludes with rejoicing in the vengeance of God that, will, that he will bring upon his adversaries, uh, Deuteronomy 32, verse 43. <clears throat> when David had an opportunity to kill Saul from whom he was hiding for, for his own life, he doesn't take vengeance into his own hands, but said, may the Lord judge between me and you. May the Lord avenge me against you, but my hand shall not be against you. Jesus commends the example of the widow who persistently begged the judge to grant her justice against her adversary. She begs the judge over and over, and it's her persistence that Jesus points to as an example of the prayer of saints who are praying for, for justice and expecting God to bring it. So that's what these souls under the altar are doing as well. There's nothing unchristian about it. Their prayers are not a nuisance to God. He isn't frustrated by them. Oh, I wish you could be more gracious. No, they're similar to the imprecatory psalms that are filled with curses upon the enemies of God and his people. The prayers of these martyrs reflect a good desire for God to bring justice. It reflects a desire for the elimination of wickedness our own and the wickedness of our enemies. And God tells them to rest until the final martyr is added to their number. Joel Meeke comments, there more Christians have been martyred for their faith in the past century than in the previous 19 centuries combined. And maybe we don't re reflect upon that as often as we should. 
the number of souls under this altar in heaven is continuing to grow, even today. And the martyrs may appear to have been conquered by their enemies. Here on earth, that's what it looks like. Their bodies are in their grave, or they're burned at the stake. But it's upon their death that they receive the white robe of victory from God. It's the, the color white may also point to the righteousness and the purity of the saints who've been united to Christ, from whom they've received justification, sanctification, and glorification. They've received their full reward, and yet they're still waiting. They're still waiting for justice to be fully and finally brought upon this earth so that they might receive their full inheritance in the new heavens and new earth. So they still long for more. They've received a portion of their reward, but they are waiting for more. So does the vindication of Christ's name weigh heavy upon your heart? Do you cry out with these souls? Do you cry out with them in prayer for the Lord's vengeance? Maybe even a more challenging question for us is, are you willing to join them beneath that altar? Not all of us are going to be martyrs. Not all of us are called to it. We shouldn't seek it. We shouldn't be putting ourselves in places where we, where we just are, are asking to be martyred. And yet, are you willing to be? Are you willing to stand firm in the face of that kind of persecution? The martyr's cry for vengeance is answered in the sixth seal. And it's answered also by this other cry. You have a cry of Christ's rivals. A cry of Christ's rivals in verses 12 through 17. The sixth seal marks the beginning of the day of judgment. It's God's answer to the cry of the martyrs in the previous seal. That, that being the case, then we must, or we know that the number of martyrs between five and the fifth and sixth seal has been fully reached. And it's, it's the end. This can only be a description of the end, and I'll try to show that to you here. It's not a precursor to the end. It's not a buildup of some you know, seven-year tribulation, as dispensationalists would teach, that then will have its ultimate and final end later on in Revelation. If you're reading it chronologically, you'd have to interpret it that way. You'd have to say that, that this right here is a precursor to the final end. And yet, as you read it, that doesn't make sense. Right? And, and as I've pointed out in the introduction, we're, we're to read Revelation in cycles. We see it cycling back around over and over again, looking at this present age all the way to the end. And here now, as the, we get to the sixth seal, we've come to the end of this present age. We've come to the second coming of Christ. The same event will be described in further detail later on. There will be more uh, descriptions added to our picture of that end. It's almost like looking at it from another camera angle. But this is indeed the second coming of Christ in judgment. Christ's rivals understand things rightly. 
when they say in chapter or in verse 17, for the great day of their wrath has come, and who can stand? Understood, they understood perfectly well that this is the great day of wrath reflected in this seal. So the various descriptions of the dissolution and distortion of creation in verses 12 through 14 reminds us of the signs that Jesus said would accompany his return in the Gospels, both in Luke 21 and in Mark 13. He uses this same kind of language, right? That, that there was a great earthquake and the sun became black as sackcloth. The full moon became like blood and the stars of the sky fell to the earth as the fig tree sheds its winter fruit when shaken by a gale. The sky vanished like a scroll that is being rolled up and every mountain and island was removed from its place. All of these passages combine an allusion to Ezekiel and Joel and Isaiah and Hosea, reflecting upon end-time judgments. So imagine seeing the, this visual display unfolding before your eyes as John is seen. And many of you felt tremors these past few days from a fairly large earthquake that wasn't so near to us. And there's... Um, Maybe we saw some water shaking in our pools. Um, we were watching the news, and, and they kept replaying the same videos over and over again. And it, it just wasn't so terrifying. Right? It wasn't, wasn't so scary to see like a, a bottle of um, lotion that's kind of wobbling a little bit or some chandeliers swaying or, or lights. But, but obviously, if you're closer to the fault line, you're, you're going to experience that to a much more devastating degree. And as we talked about in the letters to the Asia Minor, they had experienced two quite devastating earthquakes in the first century that demolished their cities to the point that Rome had to offer help. So build the, the, the demolishing of 